Now let me read to us from Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 31. In verse 30, we learn that the apostles have just returned to Jesus after they'd been sent out. There in verse 31, Mark writes, And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully before the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Genesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. May our gracious God bless the reading and now the preaching and the hearing of his word. The more I study the Bible the more I am amazed 
by how deep and rich and multifaceted it is, especially when you're studying the Bible in order to teach it. Uh, You always find that there is more water in the well uh, than you're able to draw. There are more riches in the shaft than you're able to mine. Now, that's true even when you're not trying to preach on three Bible stories in 46 minutes. Well, in our sermon text this morning, Mark records three episodes in the life of the Lord Jesus. First, the feeding of the 5,000. Second, Jesus walking on water. Uh, And third, the continuation of Jesus' healing ministry in Genesaret. And there is a wealth of material in each of these stories on which we might uh, reflect. Uh, The primary thing that I want us to see from the text this morning is that in placing these three narratives together, Mark is continuing to fill out his answer to the one question that drives the narrative from Mark chapters 1 to 8. And that question is, who is Jesus? That's what Mark's doing, really, throughout Mark 1 to 8. He is giving a full Old Testament allusion-rich answer to the question, Who is Jesus? In our passage this morning, I trust we'll see that Mark's answer to that question is that Jesus is the divine shepherd that we need. That's, I think, the main point of our text this morning. Jesus is the divine shepherd that we need. He is God the shepherd, the good shepherd, whose care We cannot live without. A friend, as I say that, I wonder whether you see yourself as someone who needs a shepherd. When you think about what you're up against in life and in death, is it clear to you that you need help from someone much wiser and more capable than you? When you think about life and death, is it clear to you That in order to live well, you need guidance and care and protection and provision from a more than merely human source. Mark wants to persuade us this morning that Jesus is the shepherd we need in life and in death. So in our time together this morning, I want us to note three ways in which Jesus reveals that he is the divine shepherd Three ways that Jesus reveals that he is the divine shepherd. First, our first point this morning. Jesus shows himself to be the divine shepherd in his compassion. We see that Jesus is the divine shepherd in his compassion. As I said, our, Mark, our, our narrative from Mark resumes Uh, just as Jesus' 12 apostles have returned uh, from their ministry tour around Israel. And as the apostles have returned to Jesus, so also has returned the dizzying pace of life with Jesus. Mark writes in verse 31 that these guys were so busy they had no leisure even to eat. We actually saw the same was the case back in chapter 3 when the crowds were also swelling to a great size. And so Jesus says to his apostles, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Can't you see even in that first verse, the compassion that Jesus has for his people. 
Jesus insists that his servants take rest. Jesus calls us to serve him with everything that we are, to lay down our lives in following him. But can you also see that he delights in our good? He delights to give his people the rest that they need. He isn't impressed when we don't take the rest that he gives us. He isn't impressed when we burn ourselves out. There in verse 32, Jesus and the disciples all pile into a boat. They sail across the Sea of Galilee to, Mark tells us, a desolate place. There in verse 33, Mark tells us that while Jesus is in transit, as he and the disciples are in the boat, the crowds notice that he's on the move. And soon thousands of people from various towns are running on foot to the spot that it looks like Jesus is going to land. Jesus had planned a stress-free vacation with his disciples, but all these locals insist on ruining Jesus' plan. Good grief, you think that after all of the good he'd done them, they'd at least be willing to give him some space. The least they could do is not interrupt his plans. Friends, I wonder how you respond when your plans are interrupted by needy people. How do you respond when your plans are interrupted by needy people? How does Jesus respond when his plans are interrupted by needy, impudent people? Look there at the first half of verse 34. Mark says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Friends, see how different Jesus is from you and me. Jesus looks out on this crowd. He doesn't see an inconvenience leading to frustration. He sees need that moves him to compassion, to pity and sympathy and love. What is it about these people that draws out the compassion of the Lord Jesus? Is it that they're poor? Is it that they're sick? Is it that they're politically oppressed by Rome? Well, Mark tells us very plainly why Jesus has compassion there in the middle of verse 34. Look, he says, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Throughout the Old Testament, the image of a shepherd, as we've seen in the service so far, is really used as a metaphor for two things. So first and foremost, in the Old Testament, God is the shepherd of his people. I think, for example, of Psalm 23, which Eric mentioned earlier. How does that psalm start? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. God is the good shepherd who provides for and protects and leads and guides his covenant people. Psalm 80 addresses God as the shepherd of Israel. The second way in which that image of the shepherd is used in the Old Testament is actually to talk about the human leaders of God's people. So interestingly, Moses was literally a shepherd before he led the people of Israel. King David also, before he was king, was literally a sheep-tending shepherd. And when Moses and David become the leaders of God's people, they are then described as shepherding, not the flocks, but the people of Israel. 
Think back to the reading from Ezekiel 34 when Ezekiel is tearing into the leaders of God's people because they've been selfish. Ezekiel calls them shepherds who've been feeding themselves. So the picture is that God's shepherdly or pastoral, pastor being the Latin word for shepherd, God's pastoral care for his people is intended to be mediated through good shepherd leaders whom he gives to them. So when Jesus steps off this boat and he sees this crowd that's come literally flocking to him, he sees that they need someone to mediate God's pastoral care for them. He sees that these people are like sheep without a shepherd. They are vulnerable and directionless and lacking in all kinds of ways. They are like, we are like sheep. You don't have to be an expert in first century shepherding to understand that sheep lack the wisdom and the capability to care for themselves. I once heard a pastor illustrate it this way. Think about all the professional sports teams named after animals. So you have the Memphis Grizzlies, the Milwaukee Bucks, the Detroit Tigers, the Atlanta Falcons, the Philadelphia Eagles. I am not aware of any sports teams anywhere at any level named after the sheep. That's because sheep are not cunning. They are not quick. They are not mighty. They are not intimidating. They are largely helpless and often clueless. They require a lot of care and assistance. Friends, listen. This is so contrary to how the world teaches us to see ourselves. Uh, The Bible teaches, though, that every one of us, however competent we are, however intelligent we are, however successful we are, whatever position of leadership we might hold, however much we feel that we're on top of life, from God's wise perspective, we are all a lot like sheep. We lack the wisdom to care for ourselves in the most important ways. We don't see our true needs very clearly. And even when we do see our true needs, we're often not equipped to meet them. I was recently reading in Revelation chapter 3, where the Lord Jesus is speaking to the church of Laodicea. And Jesus is talking about how the people in this church of Laodicea, they are spiritually lukewarm. In fact, it's, it's not entirely clear even whether these people are Christians. And Jesus says to these Laodiceans, he says, listen, you think that you're rich. He says, you think that you're prosperous. You think that you need nothing. But Jesus says to them that they are, quote, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus says to these people, look, you think that because you have enough money and comfort to feel secure that you've got it made, but you don't. When the way that you live before God is evaluated on the last day, you will come to see that you have nothing and that you desperately need what I, the shepherd, want to give to you. Jesus knows that apart from his direction and his help and his guidance, all of us, we are sheep without a shepherd. We lack wisdom. We lack perspective. We lack capability. I certainly do. 
And as Jesus sees us in our vulnerability, he is drawn out to us in compassion. His heart yearns to help and relieve us, to lead and guide us. See that Jesus is the divine shepherd in his compassion. Last thing to notice in this first point, what does Jesus do in his compassion? Well, he, he feeds the crowd. He multiplies the loaves. That's true. But what does Mark mention Jesus doing immediately after he mentions Jesus' compassion? Look there again at verse 34, this time reading the whole verse all the way through. Verse 34 says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus knows that our great need is for his word, for his teaching. In our own thinking, we can sort of tend to bifurcate the compassion of Jesus on the one hand uh, and his teaching on the other. So the teaching is sort of the, the important but hard news. And you certainly don't give the teaching to someone who's suffering, right? And Jesus' compassion is just the good stuff that would never, never correct us or never f- expect anything from us. It's just all hugs and, and rainbows, right? No, 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 no. Don't you see It is because Jesus has compassion on us that he gives us his good teaching, right? His teaching is medicine for the sick. It is a map for the lost. It is light for those stuck in the darkness. Jesus' words are a gift of his compassion to his people. For those of us who teach God's word, this was a challenge to me this week. Shouldn't this shape the way that we that we teach? Shouldn't this shape our hearts as we teach? If, If the teaching of Jesus is something that he gives to us out of his great compassion, when we are bringing that teaching to ourselves and to others, shouldn't, shouldn't that shape our attitude toward what he says and our attitude toward those to whom we're speaking? And for all of us, shouldn't this shape how we hear God's word? as the love gift of a compassionate Savior who is wise, who knows how to care for us. We see that Jesus is the divine shepherd in his compassion as he teaches the crowd many things. Jesus, as you know, doesn't only teach the crowd in our passage. Our passage is famous because Jesus also feeds this gigantic crowd, which leads us to our second point. The second way that we see that Jesus is the divine shepherd is in his provision. This passage reveals Jesus as the divine shepherd in his provision. And the feeding of the 5,000 might be one of Jesus' most familiar miracles. So if you grew up going to Sunday school, you very likely learned that Jesus took five loaves and two fish And he miraculously multiplied them to feed a crowd of over 5,000 people. And there are many, many true lessons that we can draw from the feeding of the 5,000. From another gospel, we know that these loaves and fish came from a little boy. So this miracle illustrates how God loves to use the small sacrifices of his people to accomplish big things. This miracle shows that those who serve Jesus, the disciples 
Uh, they have to depend on Jesus in order to accomplish what he asks them to do. Right? Jesus says, go feed the people. And they're like, ah, uh, we can't. Can you help, right? If you want to serve Jesus, you have to depend on Jesus. Uh, the miracle reveals even more of Jesus' compassion for the crowd. Not only does he teach them, feed them spiritually, he has compassion on their physical needs, he cares about their bodies, about their hunger. Many true, excellent, valid inferences for us to make from this story. I don't think, though, that any of those are the main point that Mark intends for us to draw from this story. In fact, I, I think the main point of this story uh, comes out clearly in the way that Mark tells it. And that his point is that Jesus, the good shepherd, provides for his people. That's what I think Mark is trying to show us in this miracle. Mark is trying to show us that Jesus, the good shepherd, provides for his people. Now, why do I say that that's Mark's point? I say that because of the repeated words and the Old Testament allusions in the passage. The repeated words and the Old Testament references. When you are studying the Bible especially when you're reading biblical narrative, note the words that get repeated. They are signposts to the main point. Did you notice that three times Mark tells us where this miracle happens? Three times Mark tells us that this miracle takes place in a desolate place. Verse 31, Jesus says, go seek rest in a desolate place. Verse 32, they hop in a boat and they go to a desolate place. Verse 35, the disciples are telling Jesus what to do and they say, Jesus, this is a desolate place. Well, do you know how that word desolate gets translated in the Greek version of the Old Testament? Wilderness. It's a wilderness, wilderness, wilderness place that this miracle happens. Mark wants us to notice. He says, wilderness, wilderness, wilderness. Okay, that must be important. Did you notice how many times Mark talks about eating? In one sense, that's unsurprising because Jesus is multiplying loaves. But, but Mark keeps waving that word in front of our, our face. Five, or if you have a different manuscript, six times in this story, Mark talks about eating. Verse 31, the disciples are too busy to eat. Verse 36, they want the crowds to go buy something to eat. Verse 37, Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. Verse 37, again, they're, they're like, are we going to go buy enough food so that these people can eat? Verse 42, everyone eats and is satisfied. So this is a story about eat, eat, eating in the wilderness, 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 right? you notice that five times in the story, Mark mentions bread. So our translation uses the word loaves. Literally, it's just breads. So Mark is like, eat, 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 wilderness, 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 breads, 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 breads. Right? Alongside the bread, he mentions the fish. But in the next story, when it's referenced back to this story, Mark again mentions the bread. Eat, 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 bread, 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 wilderness, wilderness, wilderness. Hmm, do you know any Old Testament stories where God performs a miracle so that his people can eat, 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 bread, bread, bread in the wilderness, wilderness, wilderness? Right, that sounds to me like the good shepherd feeding Israel his flock with manna in the wilderness as he brings them out of Egypt in the Exodus. 
So who does that, what does that say about who Jesus is? That he's the one who miraculously gives bread to eat in the wilderness. Jesus is God, the providing shepherd. When you're studying the Bible, note the repeated words and the Old Testament passages they point you to. Also, note the extra details. Mark doesn't often give us extra details for no reason, right? He, he hasn't told us what Peter was wearing. He hasn't told us how Andrew was feeling. He hasn't even told us exactly where this desolate place is. But look at the details that he does mention. Look there in verse 39. In verse 39, before Jesus multiplies these loaves and fish, Mark tells us, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. As far as I can tell, this is the first time in Mark's gospel that he has described the color of anything. And he didn't need to, right? So why does Mark pause, not just to tell us, then Jesus had them sit down, and not just to tell us Jesus had them sit down on the grass, but to pause to say, hey, you know what? Before Jesus fed these people, he had them sit down on the green grass. Or you might even say that he made them lie down in green pastures. And next, Mark tells us that Jesus made them sit in groups. He says, so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Hmm. That kind of reminds us of Exodus chapter 18, when after God gives the children of Israel manna in the wilderness, in Exodus 16, God divides, or Moses rather, divides the people of Israel into groups, including groups of 50 and 100, so that he can shepherd them better. That might explain why Mark mentions the number of men specifically to hearken back to how the children of Israel were counted according to the number of military-ready men. Do you see what Mark is doing? Through his repeated words and through his details, he is saying, Jesus is the God who fed the children of Israel in the wilderness. Like God provided for Israel in the wilderness back then in the Exodus, so Jesus now has come to be the provider shepherd for his people. One more detail of this story to point out there in verse 41. Mark writes this. Notice the, notice the verbs. It says, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. What did Jesus do with the bread? He took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. He took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. Later in Mark's gospel, we read that Jesus at the Last Supper took bread. He said a blessing over it. He broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, this is my body. Do you see what Mark is doing? He's picking up on the thread that runs throughout the Bible that God is the provider for his people. He's pointing back to the provision in the wilderness in Exodus. He's pointing forward to the Lord's Supper, which itself points forward to when Jesus provides his body to be broken for us on the cross, which points even further forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb when all of God's people will eat and be satisfied forever in his presence. 
Okay, cool. Mark really, really, really knows his Bible. Amazing. Why does this matter? Christian, this matters because your story is an episode in this big story. Your story is an episode in the big multi-season story called The Good Shepherd Provides for His People. Listen, here's what the feeding of the 5,000 means for you if you're a Christian. Jesus, your shepherd, is committed to providing everything that you need to make it through the wilderness. Listen, when you pray, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus, your shepherd, who knows what you need, will give you what you need. That is how he has always been with his people. Jesus wants you to see him as God the shepherd who will provide for you whatever you're facing, whatever you're lacking. He will give you what you need according to his perfect love and knowledge. A Francis Jane Crosby was an American hymn writer who lived from 1820 to 1915. Francis Crosby was either born blind or became blind very shortly after birth. Uh, her father died when she was six months old. Uh, Francis Crosby was raised by her mother and her grandmother. She married a Christian man who was also blind. Uh, Francis Crosby suffered from poor health at various points in her life. At various times, she lived in poverty. When Francis' husband died 13 years before she did, uh, she was too sick to attend his funeral. Uh, Francis had only one child who died as an infant. Uh, Francis Jane Crosby lived a really hard life. But despite all her sorrows, Francis Crosby spent her youth memorizing the Bible. By the time she was 15, she'd memorized all four Gospels. She spent her whole life writing hymns about her shepherd provider, Jesus. One of those hymns we sang earlier in the service, it goes like this. All the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt His tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in Him to dwell. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things. Well, this, this blind woman who lost a father and a husband and a child who spent much of her life sick, some of her life poor, what's the description of the Christian life that she leaves us? She says, my shepherd has led me all the way. What else can I ask for than the tender mercy that he's shown me throughout my life. Later in the song, she says, he feeds me with the living bread. He gives me grace for every trial. So Christian, whatever your current circumstances, whatever your current need, your current sufferings, see in this Bible story that your good shepherd Jesus is committed to providing for you all that you need. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me just say we're delighted that you're here. We hope you feel welcome here. You certainly are welcome. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me urge you to consider what Jesus, the good shepherd, offers to you. 
The Bible is very clear that Jesus doesn't offer to make all of your problems go away in the way that you'd like. But Jesus does offer to be your shepherd in life and in death. And most of all, Jesus offers himself to you as the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep so that they might have forgiveness of sins and peace with God. Uh, In John's gospel, when John records this miracle, uh, the people who were fed by the loaves, they get really excited because Jesus means free bread. And so they start following him around for a little while. But it becomes very clear that what they want is a snack and not a shepherd. And Jesus, to sort of focus them on what matters, he says, listen, I am the bread of life. I am the one you need. Ultimately, you need God's provision. What do you need him to provide most? You need him to provide me, the all-sufficient Savior who died and rose to give eternal life. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, Jesus offers to be your good shepherd if you will turn from sin to trust in him for salvation. If you have any questions about that, please come speak with any of us after the service. I'd be delighted to talk with you Any of our members would love to speak with you about how the good shepherd can be your shepherd through faith. In our passage, Jesus shows himself to be the divine shepherd, first in his compassion, uh, second in his provision. Third and finally, Jesus reveals that he is the divine shepherd in his power. Jesus reveals that he's the divine shepherd in his power. After Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish, After thousands of people eat and are satisfied. Verse 45 tells us that Jesus gets his disciples into the boat and sends them off to the other side while he himself dismisses the crowd. Jesus makes the crowd go away and he ascends a mountain alone to pray. Striking the priority that prayer is in the life of the Lord Jesus. It also reminds us of another shepherd who went up a mountain to commune with God. Jesus being presented here as the greater Moses. Mark tells us that in the evening, the disciples are out on the sea. They're rowing against the wind. Jesus sees the disciples are having a hard time. So once again, the good shepherd comes to the rescue of the sheep. There in verse 48, we read that about the fourth watch of the night, which the footnote tells you is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus comes to them miraculously walking on the water. It's worth pointing out that some unbelieving Bible scholars think that Mark isn't actually saying that Jesus is doing anything supernatural in this story or the other one. They say the feeding of the 5,000 is just about how Jesus inspired people to share their food. Uh, And this story is about how Jesus knew where there was a sandbar and the the disciples were inspired by his coming to them. Uh, These unbelieving scholars are doing what I like to call royally missing the point. Uh, These people ought to just man up and say that they think Mark is a liar instead of royally missing his point. It's one thing to say, I don't believe that this happened. It's another thing to pretend that Mark isn't saying that it happened. Mark is very clearly claiming that Jesus is miraculously walking on the Sea of Galilee around 3 a.m., which is implausible unless he's also God. Once again, as we saw when Jesus calmed the storm back in Mark 4, what you can't miss is that this miracle reveals that Jesus is God. Who has power over nature? God has power over nature. The divine shepherd does. Look there in verse 48. Did you notice this? 
It says, he meant to pass by them. What? You, you think of him coming to the disciples in the boat. You don't, you don't remember that he was actually going to walk by them. What, why does the text say that he meant to pass by them? Well, it could be a reference to Job chapter 9, where Job describes God, God, as the one who tramples down the waves of the sea. And Job says, he passes by me and I see him not. More likely, I think it's a reference to Exodus uh, when God reveals his glory to Moses on the mountain. How does he reveal his glory? By passing by Moses. The disciples see Jesus walking on the water at 3 a.m., exhausted and harried, and they are terrified, as we would likely be. They think he's a ghost. But verse 50 says, But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. You know what he says literally when it's translated, it is I? I am. He says, take heart, I am. Referencing God's name in Exodus again. Mark has Exodus on the brain. Jesus gets into the boat. The wind stops. Jesus has delivered them from their travail. And we read there that the disciples are utterly astounded. A scholar, William Lane, suggests they had no category for understanding Jesus' presence with them in the boat. They're like, wait, Jesus was on the mountain, and now he's in the, and there was a storm, and now there's no, they're, they're utterly astounded. They don't understand what's happened. Why are they utterly astounded? Look there in verse 52. Verse 52 says, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. See, the disciples are astounded because they haven't yet understood who Jesus is, at least not fully. Again, William Lane puts it this way. He says, the disciples certainly realized that the multitude had been fed with five loaves and two fish, but they had failed to grasp that this event pointed beyond itself to the secret of Jesus' person. That is why they displayed not confidence and joy in Jesus' unexpected presence, but faithless panic. Faithless panic. Brothers and sisters, how often do we respond to Jesus' ways in our lives with faithless panic instead of confidence and joy? Something goes wrong. The rowing gets hard. The wind is against us. It's 3 a.m. We're tired and cranky. And when the unexpected happens, we're not characterized by confidence and joy, but by faithless panic, by fear and worry like the disciples. See, even if we have good theology, even if you could teach the Sunday school class on how God is, Jesus is truly God and truly man, when the storms of life cause us to have faithless panic, doesn't that betray that we have lost sight of who the good shepherd is? Doesn't that mean we haven't understood yet about the loaves? that we haven't seen from the scriptures his power and commitment and compassion to take care of us. Friend, there's a reason that Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. There's a reason that that has been so, so much the favorite psalm of so many Christians for thousands of years. It's because we are so helped by remembering what a good shepherd we have. We are so helped to remember his compassion for his sheep, his provision promised to out, 
to us throughout our lives, his power to calm the winds, to join us in the boat, to calm us with his presence. We see Jesus as the good shepherd in his compassion, in his provision, and in his power. Let me close with this. The gospel of Mark is the true story of Jesus' life. Mark is claiming to tell us objectively true history. He is recording true events that happened in time and in space. You see, don't you, that Mark is also teaching us eternal truths about how Jesus shepherds his people. Jesus, the God-man, really fed 5,000 people in the wilderness. And that same Jesus really provides for every one of his sheep still today. Jesus, the God-man, really walked on the Sea of Galilee at 3 a.m. about 2,000 years ago. And that same Jesus is still able to come to his people in the storm and give them peace by his presence in the boat with them. You understand that the true history of Jesus' life is a series of pictures revealing to you what kind of shepherd he is to all who trust in him. Our passage this morning closes with the picture that Mark has given us over and over and over throughout his gospel. The picture of Jesus healing the sick. There in verse 53, we read that Jesus and his disciples come to the other side, to the land of Genesaret. This is not to be confused with the country of the Gerasenes from chapter 5. That's on the east side. This is on the west side. Our passage ends the same way that it started. As Jesus lands, the locals recognize who he is and they flock to the shepherd. Look with me at the last three verses of the passage. Let me read from verse 54 to 56. It says, And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. What is the picture of Jesus the shepherd that Mark leaves us with again and again and again? It's the picture of sick, broken, needy, sad people coming to Jesus and receiving what they need receiving his grace, his help, his healing. Friend, this, I think, is the primary application of the passage. When you are needy, go to the good shepherd for help. When you are needy, go to the good shepherd for help. If you are guilty, go to him for forgiveness. If you are sinful, go to him for cleansing. If you are anxious, go to him in prayer. If you have needs, go to him and ask. If you are suffering, go to him and lament. If you lack wisdom, go to him for instruction. As you see Jesus in this passage... Consider that the author to the letter of the Hebrews says, 
This Jesus who fed the 5,000, this Jesus who came to the disciples and calmed their storm, this Jesus to whom they brought all the sick and he healed them. The author says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His compassion has not cooled. His commitment to provide has not been rescinded. His power has not weakened. Saints, perhaps best of all, the good things that Jesus brought in his earthly ministry, the healing, the abundance, the rescue, they are shadows and pointers to the goodness of the eternal kingdom, the eternal, unending kingdom that Jesus will give to all who trust in him. When, as we read from Revelation chapter 7, we are gathered around the throne of the shepherd king and there's no more lack There's no more sickness. There's no more hunger. There's no more storms. There is only feeding in his presence. One day soon, none of Jesus' sheep will ever be sick again. We will be free from our faithless panic. We will eat and be satisfied, fed by the good shepherd as we dwell in God's house forever. Let's give thanks to God now for this good shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, very God, very man. We thank you for his compassion. We thank you for his commitment to provide all that we need. We thank you for his power over all that afflicts us. God, we pray that you would give us hearts of faith that trust in this shepherd. I pray that when we are needy, anxious, sick, sinful, when we lack wisdom, Lord, in all of our need and misery, that you would teach us to go to the shepherd, to cling tightly to him, to walk by faith in him. God, would you give us joy as we sing your praises now? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.